Chapter 28 of Where Love Is by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 28 The Word of Aline. What she wrote to him is no great matter. Her letter, which she opened on coming down to breakfast the next morning, filled many pages. It was a rhapsody of passionate love and self abasement, with frantic appeals for forgiveness. In its cowardice there was something horribly piteous. Jimmy read it beneath the high north window of the studio, his back turned towards Aline, who was seated at the breakfast-table at the other end. For a long, long while he stood there, quite still, holding the letter in his hand. Aline, in wonder, stole up quietly and touched his arm. When he turned, she saw that his face was ashen grey, like a dead man's. The shock left its mark upon him. Physically it accomplished the work of ten years, wiping the youth from his face and setting in its stead the seal of middle age. It is common enough for grief or illness to lay its hand on the face of a woman no longer young, and shrivel up her beauty like a leaf and set her free, old and withered. But with a man who has no such beauty to be marred, the case is rare. For a week he remained silent. The two women who loved him waited in patience until the time should come for their comforting to be of use. From the very first morning he let no change appear in his habits, but set his palette as usual, and went on with the new picture that was nearing completion. In the afternoon he went for a walk. Aline, going down to the studio, happened to look at his morning's work. For a moment she was puzzled by what she saw, for she was familiar with his methods. Gradually the solution dawned upon her. He had been painting meaninglessly incoherently, putting in splotches of colour that had no relation to the tone of the picture, crudely accentuating outlines, daubing here, there, and anywhere with an aimless brush. It was the work of a child or a drunken man. Aline cast herself on the model platform and cried till she could cry no more. When he came back he took a turpentine rag and obliterated the whole picture. For days he worked incessantly, trying in vain to repaint. Nothing would come right. The elementary technique of his art seemed to have left him. Aline strove to get him away. He resisted. He had to do his day's work, he said. "'But you're not well, dear,' she urged. "'You will kill yourself if you go on like this.' "'I've never heard of work killing a man,' he answered. Then, after a pause, "'No, it's not work that kills.' At last the sleep that had failed him returned, and he awoke one morning free from the daze and the brain against which he had been obstinately struggling. He rose and faced the world again with clear eyes. When Aline entered the studio to summon him to lunch, she found him painting at the unhappy picture with his accustomed sureness of touch. He leaned back and surveyed his handiwork. "'It's going to be magnificent, isn't it? What a blessing I wiped out the first attempt!' "'Yes,' "'This is ever so much better, Jimmy,' the girl replied, with tears very near her eyes. But her heart swelled with happy relief. The aching strain of the past week was over. She had dreaded breakdown, illness, and permanent paralysis of his faculties. The man she knew and loved had seemed to be dead, and his place taken by a vacant-eyed simulacrum. Now he had come to life again, and his first word sounded the eternal chord of hope and faith. 
From that day onwards he gave no sign of pain or preoccupation. Only the stamp of middle age upon his face betrayed the suffering through which he had passed. He concerned himself about Aline's marriage. Arrangements had been made for it to take place on the same day as that of their elders, a day, however, that Norma had never fixed. The recent catastrophe had caused its indefinite postponement. Aline declared herself to be in the same position as before, the responsibility of the beloved's welfare being again thrust upon her shoulders. She pleaded with her lover for delay, and young Merriweather, disappointed though he was, acquiesced with good grace. At last Jimmy called them before him, and, waving his old brow-root pipe as he spoke, delivered his ultimatum. "'My dear children,' said he, standing up before them, as they sat together on the rusty sofa, "'you have the two greatest and most glorious things in a great and glorious world, youth and love. Don't despise the one and waste the other. Get all the beauty you can out of life, and you'll shed it on other people. You'll shed it on me. That's why I want you to marry as soon as ever you are ready. You'll let me come and look at you sometimes, and if you are happy together, as God grant you will be, that will be my great happiness.' "'the greatest, I think, that earth has in store for me. "'I've stood between you long enough. "'All that is over. "'I shall miss my little girl, Tony. "'I should be an inhuman monster if I didn't. "'But I should be a monster never before imagined by a disordered brain "'if I found any pleasure in having her here to look after me "'when she ought to be living her life in fullness. "'And that's the very end of the matter. "'I speak selfishly. "'I can't help it. "'I have a great longing for joy around me once more.' "'Go upstairs and settle everything finally between you.' "'When they had gone, he sighed. "'Yes,' he said to himself, "'a great longing for joy, "'and the sound of the steps of little children.' "'Then he laughed, calling himself a fool, "'and went on with his painting. "'A day or two afterwards, "'Connie Deering, who had been a frequent visitor "'since Norma's flight, "'walked into the studio while Jimmy was working. "'Don't let me disturb you. "'Please go on.' she cried in her bright, airy way. "'If you don't, I'll disappear. I've only come for a gossip.' Jimmy drew a chair near the easel and resumed his brush. She congratulated him on the picture. It was shaping beautifully. She'd been talking about it last night to Lord Hyston, who promised to call at the studio to inspect it. Lord Hyston was a well-known buyer of modern work. "'He is stocking a castle in Wales which he never goes near, with acres of paint.' she said encouragingly. "'So I don't see why you shouldn't have a look in.' "'Is there a family ghost in the castle?' "'I believe there are two. "'That's a blessing,' said Jimmy. "'Someone, at any rate, will look at the pictures.' She watched him in silence for a minute or two. Then she came to the important topic. "'So the two children have made up their minds at last?' "'Yes, they are to be married on the 28th of May.' "'Poor young things,' said Connie. "'Why, poor?' "'I don't know,' she said, with a sigh. "'The subject of marriage always makes me sad nowadays. "'I'm growing old and pessimistic.' "'You are bewilderingly youthful,' replied Jimmy. "'Do you know how old I am?' "'I've forgotten how to do subtraction,' he said, thinking of his own age. "'Yes, of course you know. It's awful. And Aline is, what, seventeen? Eighteen. "'You'll be dreadfully lonely without her.' "'Lonely? Oh, no. I have my thoughts and my memories.' She looked at him fleetingly. "'I should have thought you would wish to escape from memories, Jimmy.' "'Why should I?' 
the sorrow's crown of sorrows? I don't believe in it, he said, turning towards her. What has been has been. A joy that once has been is imperishable. Remembering happier things is a sorrow's crown of consolation. Thank God I have had them to remember. Do you think she is finding consolation in memories? She spoke with sudden heat, for Norma's conduct had filled her heart with blazing indignation. I hope so, said Jimmy dreamily, after a pause. But she has not so many as I. She loved me deeply. She had her hour. But I had my day. If I were you, I should want never to think of her again. Not if you were I, my dear Connie, he said gently. If either of us was in the wrong, it was not she. Rubbish, said Mrs. Deering. No, it is the truth. She was made for king's palaces, and not for this sort of thing. I knew it was impossible from the first, but the joy and wonder of it all blinded my eyes. She gave me the immortal part of herself. It is mine for all eternity. I wrote to her a day or two ago. I was not able at first. I could not sleep, you know. Something seemed to have gone wrong with my head. You wrote to her? To tell her not to be unhappy for my sake. And you have forgiven her entirely? Since our love is unchanged, how could I do otherwise? But she's gone and thrown herself into the arms of another man, and such a man, said Connie brusquely. A quiver of pain passed over his face. There are things of the flesh that the discipline of life teaches a man to subdue. I think I am man enough for that. The others are things of the spirit. If ever woman loved a man, she loved me. I thank God, he added in a low voice, that she realised the impossibility before we were married. So do I, devoutly, said Connie. It would have made all the difference. Precisely, said Connie. She would have been chained, hand and foot, to an intolerable existence. She would have fretted and pined. Her life would have been an infinite burden. Heaven's mercy saved her. "'I wasn't looking at it from her point of view at all,' exclaimed Connie. "'Hers is the only one from which one can look at it,' he answered gravely. When she bade him good-bye some ten minutes later, she did not withdraw the hand which he held. Her forget-me-not eyes grew pleading, and her voice trembled a little. "'I wish I could comfort you, Jimmy, not only now, but in the lonely years to come. But remember, dear, there is nothing on earth... I wouldn't give you or do for you. Nothing on earth. It was not till long afterwards that he fully comprehended the meaning of her words, and then she herself prettily vouchsafed the interpretation. From immediate answer he kissed her on the cheek in the brotherly fashion in which he had kissed her twice before. What greater comfort, said he, can I have than to hear you say that? I am a truly enviable man, Connie. Love and affection are showered upon me in full measure. Life is very, very sweet. The next two or three weeks brought pleasant surprises which strengthened his conviction. One by one, old friends sought him out, and some heartedly, others shamefacedly, extended to him the hand of brotherhood. His evening at the Langham Sketch Club had inaugurated the new order of things. The Fruin Smiths, whose New Year party had marked the epoch between child and woman in Aline's life, invited the two outcasts to, to dinner, and pointedly signified that they were the honoured guests. Brother artists looked in casually on Sunday evenings. 
their wives called upon Aline, offering congratulations and wedding gifts. A lady whose portrait he had painted, and at whose house he had visited, commissioned him to paint the portraits of her two children. The ostracism had been removed. How this had been effected, Jimmy could not conjecture, and Tony Merriweather and Connie Deering, who were the persons primarily and independently responsible, did not enlighten him. By Aline's wedding day, all the old circle had gathered round him, and a whisper of the true story had been heard in Wiltshire House. Then the world began to smile upon him, as if to make amends for the anguish it could not remedy. He took the smile as a proof of the world's essential goodness. The great glory that for a day had made his life a blaze of splendour had faded. The sun in his heaven had been eternally eclipsed. But the lesser glory of the moon and stars remained undimmed. The tenderness of twilight lost no tone of its beauty. He stood unshaken in its faith, unchanged in himself, the strong, wise man looking upon the earth and the fullness thereof with the unclouded eyes of a child. The man whom he had most loved, the woman he had most worshipped, had each failed him, had each brought upon him bitter and abiding sorrow. They had passed like dead folks out of his daily life. Yet each retained in his heart the once inhabited chambers. They were dear ghosts. His incurable optimism in this wise brought about its consolation, for optimism involves courage of a serene quality. Aline, with her swift perception of him, had the opportunity of flashing this into an epigram. There was a little gathering in the studio, and the talk ran on personal bravery. Someone started the question, what would the perfectly brave man do if attacked unarmed by a man-eating tiger? "'I know what Jimmy would do,' she cried. "'He would try to pat the beast on the head.' There was laughter over the girl's unchallenged championship, but those who had ears to hear found the saying true. The night before the wedding the two sat up very late, spending the last hours together, and Aline sat like a child on Jimmy's knee and sobbed on his breast. The lover seemed a faraway abstraction, a malevolent force rather than a personality, that was tearing her away from the soil in which her life was rooted. Jimmy stroked her hair and spoke brave words, but he had not realised till then the wrench of parting. Till then perhaps neither had realised the strength of the bond between them. They were both fervent natures who felt intensely, and their mutual affection had been a vital part of their lives. If bright and gallant youth had not flashed across the girl's path, and, after the human way, had not caught her wandering maidenhood in strong young arms, if deeper and more tragic passion had not swept away the mature man, it is probable that this rare, pure love of theirs might have insensibly changed into the greater need one of the other, and the morrow's bells might have rung for these two. But as it was, no such impulse stirred their exquisite relationship. They were father and daughter without the barrier of paternity, brother and sister without the ties of consanguinity, lovers without the lover's throb, intimate, passionate friends with the sweet and subtle magic of the sex's difference. "'I can't bear leaving you,' she moaned. "'I can't bear leaving the dear, beautiful life. I'll think of you every second of every minute of every hour, sitting here all alone, alone. I don't want to go.' If you say the word now, I'll remain, and it shall be as it has been for ever and ever. I shall miss you terribly, my dear, said he, but I'll be the gainer in the end. 
"'You'll give me Tony as a sort of younger brother. "'I am getting to be an old man, darling, "'and soon I shall find the need of leisure in my painting life. "'You can't understand that yet. "'Tony will bring around me the younger generation "'with new enthusiasm for fresh impulses. "'It is to my very great good, dear. "'And if God gives you children, "'I'll be the only grandfather that I'll ever have, poor things, "'and I'd like to have a child about me again. "'I have experience.' I've washed your chubby face and hands, marquis vous parle, and undressed you and put you to bed, my young lady who is about to be married. Oh, Jimmy, I remember it, and I had to tell you how to do everything. It seems the day before yesterday, said Jimmy. Eh, you fougasses. The next day, when she in her wedding dress, a present from Connie Deering, walked down the aisle on her husband's arm and stole a shy glance at him, radiant, full of the promise and the pride of manhood, and met the glad love in his eyes. She forgot all else in the throbbing joy of her young life's completion. It was only afterwards, when she was changing her dress, with Connie Deering's assistance, in her own little room, that she became again conscience-stricken. "'You will look after Jimmy while I'm away, won't you?' she asked tragically. They were going to the Isle of Wight for their honeymoon. "'I would look after him altogether, if he would let me,' said Connie in an abrupt, emotional little outburst. Aline drew a quick breath. "'What do you mean?' Connie threw the simple travelling hat, whose feathers she was daintily touching, upon the bed. "'What do you think I mean?' she laughed nervously. "'I'm not an old woman. I'm as lonely as Jimmy will be, and—' "'What?' "'Oh, only I find that, that I love Jimmy as much as a silly woman can love anybody. If it's any satisfaction to you to know it.' "'and you may be quite sure that I'll see no harm comes to him during your honeymoon, dear.' The ensuing conversation nearly caused the bride to miss her train, but no bride ever left her girlhood's room more luminously happy. On the threshold she turned and threw her arms round Connie Deering's neck. "'I'll arrange it all when I come back,' she whispered. And Aline kept her word. End of chapter 28 End of Where Love Is by William John Locke